It is now my honor and pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. He's not a guest. He's been in this church before. Uh, Dave Hooper, who has been here before, as I said, married to Jill for 44 years. I said in the last two services that I could have easily been Dave's son. I'm only 43. They have two daughters and six grandchildren and many, many spiritual uh, sons and daughters, including myself. And they planted a church 27 years ago in George, which is called Patria, which means family or the family of God. Just over 18 months ago, Dave was praying and he really heard from the Lord that it's time to release the, the zeal of young people, the zeal of youth. And Dave handed over and released the church to a young couple, Pierre and Ronell, who are leading the church now. Something special is happening in the Every Nation family where the older generation can release churches to the younger generation and they're still there to support them. So churches are not only released when there's a crisis. Can we say amen to that? We celebrate that. So let's take time to thank and welcome Dave. He's a father and a friend in this house. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, sir. We've fallen in love with Sai uh, and his lovely wife. Um, and actually, my oldest daughter could have been your sister. She is 43. So, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I would have been proud to have had you, have had you as a son. Um, I like boasting about where my, where my kids are. And uh, I would have loved to have boast on you, but I still boast on you and, uh, and Lindy. <clears throat> it's just lovely being here. We're really feeling at home. And if I could have chosen one of the three services to be at, I would have chosen this one. But it's a, it's a, kind, of a, selfish, it's a kind of a selfish choice now that you've clapped. Uh, <clears throat> the reason I would have chosen this one is back home, I've been known to preach the everlasting gospel. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this one's got no end. Simon, Simon, you, you, you got the times. Okay, good, 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 good. When my wife's here, she keeps me. Um, I was just saying to the earlier congregation, she's got one of those thick Bibles and um, uh, with a zip. You remember those holders? They had those big, and, and I got to know that when the zip went, bzz, 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 it's time to end. Now... <laughs> And, and it was just the way it was closed, that now it's, now it's getting a little bit uh, long-winded, so we won't get, uh, get long-winded. But I really just trust that, uh, that the Word has got fertile soil to land on today. When it lands on fertile soil, it's got opportunity to, to create a harvest in and through our lives, and then we do become a blessing for, for many, um, as we truly are supposed to be. Um, I'm going to share on the Father's love. It's kind of in the series of, that you've been um, uh, hearing over the last couple of weeks. And uh, Simon offered for me to choose a, choose a topic very graciously. But if I, if I could have chosen one, it would have been this title. It's a, it's a passion for me to see the church uh, family restored in its fullness. As uh, Simon said earlier on, the Lord spoke to us very clearly about handing over uh, patria to younger people. In fact, the way the Lord said it to me is release the church again to have the zeal of youth. Um, if you don't, the church is going to get old with you and the church needs to 
be re refreshed with the zeal of youth. Um, and, and, and it's a passion of ours to see families whole. If, if you want to give me something that really excites me uh, when I'm walking at an airport or I'm walking in the street and I see a father and a mother with two or three kids and the family's whole, it just it gives me an absolute thrill to see that. It's, I can see Jesus expressed in that moment when I see, when I see families whole. And so it's a, it's a um, title that kind of easily fits in my world. I'm going to share on uh, uh, Luke chapter 15, which you've been hearing about the last while. It starts verse 11, and it ends about verse 32, but I'm just going to preach up to verse 24. It's the first part of the parable of the lost son. I'm not going to read the whole parable because you've heard it, I'm sure, over the last while, but I'm going to share up until where the son comes back home. Uh, the youngest son comes back home. I'm not going to share on the, on the older brother. Um, that's a title for another message. I feel I could preach a year on the prodigal son. Uh, the Lord has taught me so much from it myself. Um, but if, if we go to verse 12, it says, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, we know that when we're drawing up a will, it can be very challenging and very problematic. I'm sure all of us, as we're sitting here, have got names and references of families that have been split apart by when the will is read, purely because someone has got more than somebody else and, and so on. Now, my, my two daughters have obviously, as, we've, as the family has grown and so on, um, they've uh, had their eye on certain things. We didn't know what they had their eye on, but, but uh, one of them one day came to us and she kind of put her arms, we've got an, an, an antique dining room table. It's over 100 years old, this table, and it's been passed down the generations. My parents got it in a time of real struggle in their lives, and they got this table which came as a blessing in their lives. And so my mom and dad, when they, when they my dad passed on just before we got married, but my mom uh, has always cherished this table. And so we've always cherished it. It's at a, a place of, of honor in our home. And uh, my, young, my, my, my daughter came along one day, and she put her arms around this table and said, Dad, Mom, I don't want anything else from you. I want this table. She didn't quite know what she was saying because um, there was a lot else, else that we had in mind for them. So we, we can understand that when there's an older generation and a younger generation, and they're thinking about the same resources, that there's a different way of approaching these same resources. The son would have a different way of approaching these resources than the father would approach these resources. Now, a son is generally more concerned about me. He's a little bit younger than the dad, so he's more concerned about me. So when he gets the money, the money focuses on him and his spending. The dad is very different. The dad has already raised a generation, and the dad is thinking of the future. Now, please don't ask my wife about the grandchildren, unless you've got an hour and a half. If you've got an hour and a half, you can ask her, and she'll gladly keep you busy for an hour and a half speaking about the grandchildren. I think the grandfather is close behind her. We love our grandchildren. When we see our grandchildren, we see future. But our children don't necessarily see the same. 
They get woken up in the middle of the night, and their kids can be an irritation at times. So they see short-term. Grandpa and grandpa are seeing long-term. We, seeing, we want to consolidate. We want to bring together. We want to, we want to make sure that this stays secure for the next generation. Not like a young son who would want it early so that he can go and spend it on himself. And then what is also problematic is how society would impact these two generations. Society in general. The society is calling out of a young son with a lot of money. He's calling out a lot of attention. Society is passing smart, shiny, fast cars past the younger generation. He looks at it and he starts to get excited. The grandfather looks at it and says, don't go there. Don't go there. It's short-lived. So they, the, the way they look at it is very, very different. The son is entering into the year of his, um, his meaning and purpose and his significance. He's maybe in his late teens, early 20s, going into his 30s. And he's entering into the stage of life where he wants to make a splash in whatever it is. It might be medicine, it might be whatever it is. He wants to make a splash. He wants to make sure that, that he's got a sig significant impact in the world that he's entering, entering into. The, the son, when he is born, is born with some intrinsic needs that he that he tries to have met in the world in which he finds himself. Let me, let me explain to you. The son, when he is born, is a little baby. He's got a deep need for love. Doesn't know it. The little boy, little girl is lying there, and they start crying. They don't know exactly why they're crying, because they can't describe hunger to you, but it's because of hunger. Depending on how much this is calling out, it starts to cry louder, it starts to cry longer, and it starts to cry with more intensity, until its needs are met. When its needs are met, it'll be quiet for a while. What's happening? What's happening is that the baby is learning to interact with its environment. In fact, there's a period that the baby is actually training mom and not mom the baby. The baby's training mom to respond quickly to its needs. Don't keep me waiting. Don't keep me waiting. Don't keep me waiting. And the irritation gets higher and higher and higher until it's had its food and it quietens down. Now, when we grow up, these needs that we have, the need for love is a powerful need that we carry through life. You and I need to be loved. You and I need to love. We've been made that way. We've been made to have this, this capacity within us to, to love a hurting world. And we've had got this capacity in us to be, to be loved when we're hurting and to love. But we've got two other big needs in us. The need for significance and purpose. Meaning and purpose and significance. Meaning and purpose would say that, that I've been born for a reason. When I sit and think about my life, I want, to, I want to do something that when I go, there'll be something left behind. Meaning and purpose. 
Meaning and purpose says that I haven't lived my life in vain. One of, the, one of the biggest challenges they found in an old age home or an area where there's a lot of old people did a survey, and I read the report on the survey that they did. They said that um, the biggest fear that old people have got when they're getting to 80s, 85, 90, we heard this often from my mother. I'm getting old, I'm useless now. I'm getting old, I'm useless now. My mother repeated it often, over. And we'd say to her, Mom, pray. Impart to the next generation. Their biggest fear is that they've lived for nothing. When they look back on their lives, they say to themselves, and it seems short, it seems compact when you look back on your life. Say to yourself, why did I live? What did I live for? What difference did I make? Significance is what we see expressed in how we want to be seen as an individual. Significance, I'm my own person. And I want, to, I want to express that significance. You see it when, when young people get into their teens and they start to want to take on their own personal identity. They start to dress in a unique way. They start to speak in a unique way. They start to hang around in a unique way. So that, and, and, and when they go into a peer group, it becomes very strong, that significance, that I'm, that I'm different. I'm me. I'm not part of the crowd. When my daughters were young and they were at school, at high school, they would start to nag for the next thing of fashion. Whenever my kids did that, they learned not to go to dad. Because this was my stock response. My daughter would come and she'd say, Dad, can I have a hundred bucks? I want to go and buy a pair of, and she'd name the shoes. And I'd say to her, <laughs> She'd look at me in the beginning. And then they'd repeat their and say, Meh. What am I saying? Don't be a sheep. Stick out. Be you. Look for something else that makes you you. Don't blend in with a crowd. Be yourself. Swim against the stream. Don't be just a flock where everybody bleeds together. Be you. Allow the Lord to reach areas in your life that makes you, you. Do those times actually apply now, Simon? I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just... So what happens is with these strong needs that we've got, we start to interact with the world around us in such a way that we'll get our needs met. It might love, significance, Meaning and purpose, we start to interact with the world in such a way that we get all those needs met, and unfortunately, we find the wrong way to have them met often. We will fall in love with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. We'll abandon our values for a moment because we want to fall in love with this person. By the way, why does it happen? Because they give me significance. Someone comes into my life. I mustn't tell you that story. Someone comes into my life as a young person and he starts telling me stuff in order to what? Get his needs met. So he's not telling me the truth about myself, he's telling me the truth about what he wants. And that's how the world starts manipulating us at a young age and we get into trouble as a result of it. We end up in the pit. As the young man did. Sometimes it's not even our fault. Sometimes it's our fault and we end up in the pit. 
I was personally involved in something that was kind of controlled the rest of my life until I dealt with it. And in fact, it's still good, but the Lord has turned around what the devil meant for bad, turned it around for good in, his, in my life. I want to tell you the story. I was a young lad, nine or ten years old. I was in Standard 4. In those days, I want to mention the standard so you know how old I am. So I, I, I was in Standard, four, uh, standard 2, grade 4, and we were in a, in a, a school where the, there were two classrooms in the school. There were about 24, 25 of us in the whole school. And they had two teachers. One was teaching this classroom. Another one was teaching that classroom. And when you're a small picky, you're in this classroom. As you get a little bit older, you go to the classroom next door. And that teacher takes you to the last three or four standards of your primary school. And so I'm in this classroom, standard two. And just to backtrack a little bit, I was brought up in an ideal environment. It was a rural environment. I hardly ever wore shoes. I was always barefoot. And I was always in the felt. A few of us used to hang around together. When I was in my early teens, I had a pet baboon. I used to catch snakes just about every day. I mean, and bring them home, and my mom would have a fit. And I used to bring them home just to see her have a fit. So, so I used to, I, I, I had, I was living in this kind of space. I had two pet um, ground squirrels, meerkats. Um, I had a pet crow. I had a monitor lizard that I'd caught. Um, the, the farmer read in the Farmer's Weekly that monitor lizards fetch a certain figure at the snake park down in Durban. So he caught this monitor lizard. I don't know how he caught it because he was dead scared of it. He caught this monitor lizard, put it in a cage, but the cage was just like thrown together, brought it to the station. The station master said to him, not on this train. He said, you're not, I'm not even taking that thing and putting it on any train. Take that home and you do what you want to with it. So in, the, the, the farmer, because he was angry with the station master, let it go on the station. So you can imagine, small rural station, busy little rural station, and it's vacated in a second. <laughs> Nobody's coming nearby. So the only one who catches snakes in that area is Dave. So they call. I get an emergency call. Come and catch the monitor lizard. Come and catch the monitor lizard. So I run to the station, and I see this monitor lizard climbed up in a poplar tree. They're very good climbers, and it's sitting on a branch. So I grab a long thing. I pull the branch down. I catch the lizard. And I proudly go home with the monitor. But that's what it was like when I was a kid. I mean, I was constantly, constantly involved with catching stuff. It's, it, 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 has, it has meaning in the story. Don't worry. So I'm sitting in this classroom, and there was an, a brilliant architect. I mean, such a good architect that he had the kids in mind that would get involved outside the classroom while they were at school. And so I would get involved outside the classroom when I was at school. Teacher comes around. Gives us 10 sums to do, this row that I'm sitting in. Gives us 10 sums to do. Gets, carries on to this row. Gives them something to do. Gets on with this row with something to do. Comes back and then starts to teach our row again. Goes back to the, his desk after we've had about 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And says, you bring up your work so that I can mark it. So he's sitting at his desk and he's marking. There's about five of us in the standard. And he's marking the book. Comes to mine, and I've got two or three sums done out of the ten. Everybody else, all the goody two-shoes in the class, had ten done. I've only got three done. 
He doesn't say anything. Pushes his seat back. And I can see the fire spitting out of his eyes. I mean, now I'm starting to, I mean, he's a big man, I'm a little lad. He grabs a strap with a kind of a thing on his desk. And he walks around to the desk and he starts beating me. But on my head, on my shoulders, on my back, beating me like I was back to my seat. He must have hit me 20 times in that journey. Felt like 50. But beat me back to my seat. I refused to cry. I'm 10, 9 or 10. All my pals are sitting in, this, in the class with me. And I'm not scared of anything. How can I cry? And so kind of a pride rises up in me. And I just say, this shame gets so big in me that I just say, I'm not going to show any weakness. And I refuse to cry. I refuse to tell my mom and dad. Because I thought if I tell them, they're going to beat me. Because I was wrong. They'll be angry with me. So I kept quiet. I put it inside. And I tried to deal with it as a 9 or 10 year old. Fast track. I'm in standard 9 at school. Grade 11 at school. In a geography class. Our teacher in the geography class is about 4 or 5 years older than me. I'm already 17. Around about there. He's at varsity that comes to the, for a term to the school and teaches for a term. So he's almost one of us, one of us in the class. He's young, 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 young still. So he says to me one day, he says, bring, Upe, bring your, your geography up here. I just want to check something in your book. Like we, I mean, he often did it. So yeah, I pick up my book and I'm walking towards him, sitting at the, at the desk. And all of a sudden he starts to tell me very personal stuff. I can't even remember what it was. But starting to, uh, climbing into my character, into my looks, into e extremely personal. And I don't know what happened. I didn't know I could fly. But the next minute, I was on top of him. And I was over the desk. It's a teacher. I was over the desk. I pushed him back on his seat, and I'm hitting him as hard with my, with my head, with my hands, just climbing into him. My pals get up and they come and pull me off. I mean, the whole class is in disarray for that moment. Come and pull me off him. And so the two of us went outside, me and him. And because it was very personal, it was the beginning of his teaching career. He didn't want this to get into his record. He said, I'm so sorry that I made a personal comment about you. So I said, well, let's forget about it. I was still angry, but I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know how I was able to get from that moment to behind the desk. On top of him. A little bit later, I'm on the mines. I'm an electrician, and I've got an assistant who works with me in the mines. He and I became like, 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 two, like a brother. We actually had a long relationship, even long after I met, left the mines. Lovely man, Christian man, loved the Lord. We encouraged each other, we spoke life to each other down in this dark hollow. One day, my boss comes down, my foreman comes down. I'm working in a filthy, filthy, filthy environment. I mean, the, the, the dust and the dirt and the stuff you've got to deal with, it was just too much. My foreman comes down. Now, he's got to go down because he's got to go down every now and again to check up what's going on. So he doesn't want to come and be with me. I mean, he doesn't want to come and check up in the work. So he reaches into my tool bag and he pulls out a screwdriver. In my, now, he had a fetish about screwdrivers. Point had to be square so you don't damage the screws and all sorts of stuff like that. And he starts poking fun 
at my screwdrivers. There again, I didn't know I wanted to fly. But if I could, at that moment, something happened. And the next thing I felt was lying flat on my back, looking up at the haulage where I was working. What happened was, I heard afterwards, that I had picked up a screwdriver that was lying next to me. And when he started interfering in my life personally, I jumped over the conveyor, but just in time, Paul, who was my assistant, grabbed hold of my cord from your lamp, goes down to a battery, grabbed hold of it and pulled me back. And I landed on my back. Praise God for that action. When I got to surface, he was very apologetic. He said, sorry, I interfered. He didn't want it to get on his record. I said to him, I didn't touch him at that stage. But I would have killed him if I got there. Fast forward. I'm in the ministry. We started the church at Patria. I mean, I'm, I'm spirit-filled. I love Jesus with all, everything in my heart. And I... and. And we start Patria, the church in George. My superintendent phones me one day. He says, Dave, um, we've got to go down to, to Cape Town on Thursday. We'll see you in Cape Town on Thursday. I, my diary was full. I said to him, sorry, I can't be there. I, there's stuff I can't move on my diary. He said to me, Dave, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you that you'll be there on Thursday. Well, at that moment, my phone changed color. It changed to red and purple. And I could have eaten it. I was so angry at that, at that moment. And I praise God that there was a phone line between us that I couldn't get. I praise God. I realized as I came to myself, I put the phone down. I said to myself, Dave Hooper, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. You see, every time in the past... When people should have spoken the truth to me, they justified my actions. In the first place, Paul said to me, but the, you shouldn't have been there. Your foreman was irritating. I mean, he came here when you, at your busiest and he starts poking around. My teacher, my geography teacher, who started to poke fun at me personally. I mean, he apologized to me because he knew he was wrong. And so all along, I'm growing up justifying my feelings of anger. And here I find myself, for the first time in my life, taking a step back and saying, Dave Hooper, you've got a problem. I never put those experiences together. And so what I did was, I went and saw somebody in the church who's much older than us, go and see her, and I say, um, much older lady, she helped us put the, our counseling department together. Uh, I'm her pastor. Knock at the door, I say, I've got a problem. My problem is me. Can you help me? She says, come inside, Dave. I said to her, surprise, surprise, I'm not Jesus. I'm Dave. And I need help. So she prays. She says, something happened. You know, I mean, this is after a while. She says, something happened when you were young. Can you remember what happened? So I said to her, you know, I grew up in the most idyllic environment. I can't remember my dad ever losing his temper with me. I can't, my mother clopped me through the face once with chicken in her hands because I was cheeky. 
I mean, I can remember that like, like yesterday, but I deserved that. I mean, I, I was cheeky, and I gave her, and she cops gave me a club. And I had early chicken that evening. I can't remember. I said, I had an idyllic environment. I was brought up in the most wonderful place. As a child, every passion that I had, I could live out. Except, you know, now I remember something. Now, now I remember. And I went back to standard two. Went back to standard two. When I made a vow, one day, I'm going to get you. One day I'm going to get you. I made that vow. I used to nurture that vow. I would wake up. Remember, I told nobody. I told nobody. Anger was, was percolating in my spirit. So I told nobody. Wake up in the middle of the night. I'm going to get you. When I was in high school, I remember saying to myself, I wonder what he looks like now. I just want to get a hold of him. Now that, now that I'm a little bit bigger, and I, that's, that's how I felt, honestly, until. You see, I didn't realize at the time that I was in a pit. I didn't realize in the time that where I was could actually lead to somebody's death and maybe even mine. I didn't realize that one day I could, my, my wife could maybe say the wrong thing to me at the wrong time. And maybe something would happen that I wouldn't even be control for those first few moments and do something. I mean, we read about it in the newspapers. But I was a candidate. Now, let me just add why I knew I was in the pit is I am the most patient person I know. I don't know anybody more patient than me. I've never, I've never lost my temper with my wife, my kids. If you ask them privately what their dad is like, they'll say, sure, he's placid. He doesn't argue. He doesn't, I mean, I, I like having a debate, but he's not in any way offensive. I can sit behind a fishing rod the whole day. Maybe for one day in a month. Okay, not that often. But... So I knew this thing is against my character. This isn't me. This isn't an expression of who God has made me to be. There's something different. So I realized that always from the pig's pit, there'll be somebody to blame. There'll be somebody to blame. I could blame a teacher. I could blame a teacher. I could blame a foreman. I could blame a senior pastor. I could blame them. There'd always be someone to blame from the pen. There'd always be someone to blame and say, look what they did to me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how I was molested as a young person, for instance. You don't know. What I know is that maybe I could have been there and been dead by now if I didn't come out of the pit. You see, I realized that no one has got the power to hurt me unless I give them that power. Unless I hand that ability over to them. You see, what we should actually have is a forgettery and not a memory. We should be able to every day 
Deal with the things of that day in a way that it will be an open book to the Lord. It's not about money. It's about the disappointment. It's about the disillusionment. It's about the rejection. The desperation. The depression that I find myself in. That's what the pig pit is about. Money is used sometimes, but it's actually about the feelings that I get when I'm in a certain place. The next verse. But when he had spent all, there rose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Verse 14. Began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Love to share with you some thoughts one day on the difference between job and work. The job we do and the work we do. Not the same thing. Very, very different. When I read that portion of scripture, I suddenly realized that there's a word which is very significant or a phrase which is very significant in that portion. And it said he joined himself together. Then I realized that there's a process of joining two which actually prolongs our time in the pit. Makes you stay there longer if you are joined to something or someone. Now, my inquisitive nature said, I want to know what that joining is all about. It takes me back to my man cave back home. Got a workshop, and I love working with my hands when I have an opportunity. And I've often, I suppose you have as well, found two things that are glued together that you want to get them apart again. We just bought some chairs a little while ago, and on the nicest of chairs, they put this ugliest of label that you can't get off. I mean, doesn't that irritate you? When you get a nice chair, and, in a ni- and the, uh, the spot in the middle is an ugly label. It took me a couple of hours to get four labels off these chairs, because I wanted them to look, look good. And it took me about um, 500 milliliters of turpentine, because I realized that the turpentine actually dissolves the glue. So a joining process is a very tenacious process. It's a very sticky process. It's something that we do that we that is difficult to untangle again. God's got to do something and sometimes it's a it's a it's an experience we've got to go through which is a difficult experience to untangle the process again. We are we should not be glued or joined together with anything that is not of God. You see, there's only two covenants that I know of, that I subscribe to, that I submit to. And that's my covenant with Jesus and my covenant with my wife. I haven't got a right to break either of those. In fact, I often say, Lord, come and occupy me. Occupy, possess every area of me. I want to be so glued together that I know when something is amiss between us. I want to be so glued to my wife that nothing's going to come and just be able to pull us apart by accident, with flattery, with whatever it is, be able to pull us, pull us apart. And so that gluing process is a process that in one sense is a very good process when we're glued in the right area, but when we're glued in the wrong area, It can be extremely destructive. And in fact, it's a form of slavery. Because it happens to us in the form of the worldly system. 
in which we sometimes get so glued to that we're not able to worship God with freedom. In our finances, for instance. I was horrified many years ago when I suddenly realized that I'd pay four, I think it was four or five times my, ba- my house's value. Do the sums. You be- we become so glued to a system that it's so difficult to untangle and ill afford belonging to God's system. Anyway, I don't want to mess with you. We might align ourselves with people, with events like I did in the past through a curse that I'd spoken out over my own life. Maybe it's through something that has been a difficult journey for you, like abortion. Like somebody molesting you when you're a teenager. Like drugs. Like a gang. Something that draws us in and starts to minister to our inner being in such a way that that thing hangs like a cloud. We don't speak about it. We don't shed any shame rises up and we just keep quiet and keep it deep in our soul, not realizing that the Lord wants to bring some turpentine. He wants to bring something to to unbond us from the thing that's holding us captive. You know, and it might even get worse because when famine comes, as in this young man, famine comes to him in the pig's pit. He goes and and allies himself, joins himself to the farmer, and then starvation sets in to him. You see, the longer we prolong the inevitable, the worse the pig pit experience becomes. Our loving Father sometimes uses the solvent of pain and suffering in order to get our attention. Who are you glued to? What are you glued to? Can I help you answer that question? Where do you spend your money? When you look at your, your spending, your budget every month, where do you spend your money? Where is the bulk? You see, money is a very personal thing. It's very personal. We, we earn it by the sweat of our brow. So it becomes a very personal expression of who I am. Where do we spend it? Where do we spend our time? Which all of us have just got a limited period of. It's a precious commodity. We don't want to spend it cheaply. Where do we spend our time? I, was, I meddled with the guys in, back home when I was preaching on the prodigal son once. And I said to them, you need to make an audit of your time. You guys are riding on your bicycles. And you ride 200 kilometers and spend a day and a half getting there. Make an audit of your time. I nearly got caught into golf like that. Then I realized, five hours chasing one ball. High ball. High ball. Where our heart will is, our money will be. And it will reveal to us where we're spending our priority time. 
You see, sometimes a desperate pig spit experience is needed in order to get us out of the pit. What do we do to get ourselves out of the pit? Well, so we absolve ourselves. We say to us, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. It's the other person's fault. Or I can try new things. Or I can try and remake myself, remodel myself, so that I can look at myself in the mirror and say, oh, but you look beautiful. To try and hide the pain that is actually inside. We can try and build a six-pack. I tried that once. <laughs> you know, but I'm 64 now. And when I, in the mirror, try and flex my muscles, there's some parts of me that just don't want to respond. I mean, they just don't want to anymore. And sometime it's going to happen that you're going to try the best outside effort, your best physical effort to do things, and you'll find it impossible. You see, there's a place where we are when we're in the pig spit that if we do not recognize where the fault is, we will look for something like a plaster, to put over the pain to make us feel good about ourselves again. We might even move to another town. But the problem with moving to another town is that you take yourself with you. That's a, when you wake up there in the town, you say, oh, good morning. I thought it's going to be different. Who have I got in bed? Oh, it's me. That's what happens. We go with me. And our pains go with us. Some try and live without God. Some of us try and get so busy in life. We go to work to earn the money, to buy the bread, to get the strength, to go to work to earn the money, to buy the bread, to get the strength, to go in the... And we get ourselves involved in a career, and we get so busy, 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 busy. We don't want to sit still because the minute we sit still, we're going to get quiet enough for the pain to remind us that it's still there. So we keep ourselves on the anvil of life. This is the very place of reckoning. This is the place we need to be able to stand back and say, Lord, like the prodigal son, one day he was sitting in the pig's pen and he came to himself. I love some of the expressions you find in Scripture. It says in this translation, when he came to himself. In other words, self wasn't with him. It was a different self in the pig's pen. Because that wasn't really him. But this day, self came. And he had a conversation with self. Self said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And just there, he got out of the pig's pen. Just there he got out of the pit. Was he out? No, he was still there. But the revelation of who his father was had already taken him out. He was already free. He didn't need any more. He didn't need the farmer to come and say, job's over. He was already free. Restoration doesn't necessarily mean someone came to him and gave him all his money back to continue his lifestyle as if it never happened. We might never see the money back again, but we'll get our lives back. We might even pray and wail and fast and hope that the money comes back. 
And maybe it'll come back when God's busy, finished with a heart. Restoration is definitely not just a temporary job. You see, God's actually interested in a permanent solution, and that's that we realize He's a loving Father. He's a loving Daddy. Says the righteous call to the Lord and he listens. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who have lost all hope. That's our Father. I love the next scripture I want to close with. But when he was still a far way off, his Father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell at his neck. And kissed him. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let's eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to be merry. Lovely picture. Now this happened in, in, on a farm. You realize that? It happened in a farm because the farmer saw him. Or the father saw him a long way off. The father was sitting. What was he doing? Looking out for his son. He was a far way off. He wasn't close by. It wasn't a servant who came to the farmer, the, the, the father and said to him, Hey, sir, uh, uh, your son's coming. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't even the older brother. It was, it was he himself. When he saw this figure appearing in the distance, he was looking for him. He sat there on his stoop. Every day, looking for him. Because he saw him when he was far off. And the father looked at the figure appearing in the distance. And he said to himself, I wonder if that is my son. He's walking like my son. He looks like it could be my son. Look, it is my son. And he got up and he ran to meet him. I don't know about you, but I love that picture. Because it means it doesn't matter what I'm smelling of. It doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter what pit I have been in. The father doesn't come to him and say, hey, hey, what you do with the money? <laughs> he doesn't do it. He doesn't confront him and say, no, 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 no. First, we sort this out. I'm not going to let you in my house. You're, gonna, you're stinking. Get yourself sorted out. Where's my money? gone. And the father is just too happy to have his son back. That's where, how he sees us, how he sees you, and how he sees me. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. When I needed him, before I killed somebody, I could find him. I'm so glad he welcomed me back. I'm so glad that day I could lift my head, get rid of all the shame, and come to him. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that there's no invention of original sin. There's nothing you and I can do that can catch him by surprise. What we've done has been done. Where we are is he knows about. And he's just too happy to welcome us back. Father, I want to thank you that you're a loving, loving daddy. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can run to you. Thank you, Father, not even we run to you, you run to us. You embrace us. You welcome us back. No recriminations, no guilt. All you do is set us free to come into this new living relationship with you. Thank you for doing it in my life, Lord. And thank you for doing it in so many of our lives who gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.